T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. More than two dozen people have filed to run for the first congressional district seat now being held by Bobby Rush, who's decided not to run for re-election. Not all will survive the ballot process, but it's a lot. Among them, a state senator, a Chicago alderwoman, and Rush's hand-picked choice. A big name could make a big difference in a crowded race. This weekend, we're going to talk to the candidate with arguably the biggest name on the ballot, Jackson. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest is businessman Jonathan Jackson. He's the middle son of the Reverend Jesse Jackson and runs a construction contracting firm, but he's been a lot more than that. He has a master's in business administration from Northwestern University. He's been an investment analyst and a real estate developer, among other things. He's also been behind the scenes at Rainbow Push and increasingly within the last year or so more out in front. This is his first run for elective office. We are conducting this interview via Zoom conferencing. And uh, Jonathan Jackson, welcome. How are you? Good to see you. Honored to to be on your program. Well, thank you very much for uh, for joining me. Um, Well, people in the Chicago area and around the world instantly know the name Jackson and your family, but they don't necessarily know you that well. So uh, tell us about this journey that has led you to want to enter such a crowded field to fill that first district seat. Public service has been a part of our family's uh, life um, ever since I was a child. The, the dining room table, the phones ringing, the organizing for so many causes. Uh, People have come to our dining room table and to my uh, mother and father's office seeking help, be it uh, when Congressman Bobby Rush was uh, seeking to have his life saved and protected after the assassination of Fred Hampton and needed uh, community support before he turned himself in to Hanrahan, the same people that killed his good friend, uh, Mr. Fred Hampton, all the way through creating a black expo where African-Americans could get on store shelves and the launch of African-American consumer clubs. Uh, We've participated in voter participation, voter education, rallies and forums. So it's been a part of our family. I tell you, this was not on my agenda some, I guess, 40 days ago now. It kind of hit as a bombshell to me um, that Congressman Bobby Rush would not seek reelection. He had been there for 30 years and has served the district well. And um, I was on a radio program January 4th doing a, re- a regular weekly update on economic issues, actually on the Al- Reverend Al Sharpton show. And he raised the question, 
considering that Congressman Rush said yesterday on the 30 wasn't running. I said, let me give it some time to think about it. And it started as a draft movement. People started calling me. I've never ruled out that I would uh, not run. And so now at the age of 56 and empty nester, um, and I know where the state of the Congress is, I wanted to lend my voice uh, to the debate. I wanna get on the field. I want to join the fight. I think it's now more urgent than ever uh, to be under the rotunda, um, A, and have advocating for our point of view, and also being able to educate and enlighten uh, people within our party and on the other side, what the issues are. I think I'm uniquely qualified having been at the table, having met Pope John Paul II in his offices, having uh, been with world leaders, been, having been with my father on missions to Iraq to bring back prisoners of war and in Syria, having sat at the table with President Mandela and seeing the weight of the issues he's had. So I feel the international part on the domestic side just in the last year, going down to the border to help with the Haitian immigrants and going down to the border to help with the uh, Spanish speaking immigrants from Central America that were being detained in some very um, unfriendly environments, shall I say. So I felt very much prepared to think about it and to take up this opportunity. And I think I can advance a lot of issues in our district and help the nation in a great way. Um, your father has run for public office, though he wasn't elected. Now, some parents uh, might look at uh, Washington, D.C. and say, stay out of that rat's nest. How does he feel about your foray into it? He's excited for me and, and very happy and says I'm well prepared. I've been underneath his tutelage and that of so many other congressional leaders as well that I could uh, too many to name at this moment that have made the way. And I have uh, have been able to call them uncles and friends. I even call uh, Congressman Bobby Rush, Uncle Rush, and uh, for that of John Conyers and Miss Maxine Waters and Representative Clyborne that in so many ways I've grown up with that generation of people and Mayor Richard Hatcher um, in, the, in Gary, Indiana. So I've seen the nation and I know what the federal representation means to the nation. That means we have a local district that we have to bring resources back to. And there's a national and international conversation that we have to weigh in on. And um, with all of my experiences, I think this is a culminating moment where I can use all those skills to make an even more impactful difference. Indeed, no. But business people are, are very often executives. Uh, you make the decisions for your company. And I've talked with business people who became lawmakers and found the legislative process kind of frustrating. You're one of hundreds of representatives. How do you feel your experience could help you get things done for your district? I would say I have, um, that's one part of my mindset is on the business. The other part is on church and compassion. Uh, you have to be willing to listen. You have to be willing to follow. You have to be willing to support. This is not business. This is government. So I think if you don't change your mindset, you will be frustrated. But knowing that people are difficult, people have challenges. If you have a heart to serve, you find out a joy to be supportive. And so this feels more like um, um, government really has the counterbalancing act to business that when times are bad, 
Uh, government has to be strong and very good. Government has to fill in where businesses can't. So I look at the other side of the coin on what the mission is, what the goals are of government. Hmm. Uh, let's talk about some of the issues that you uh, would have to face uh, in Washington and frankly in Chicago as well. Uh, the number one topic is probably uh, public safety, crime. Uh, and I think in districts all over this area, you're getting pressure from two sides, especially in a district like the first. Uh, one side says that the urban communities within the district are over-policed. They feel more like occupied territories. The other side says there's not enough policing and that people are afraid to go outside. The gangs are taking over. What's your feeling about uh, what's happening with policing and public safety in the district? Well, um, one side I would tell you what's happening in the city of Chicago is as of March uh, 18th, we've had 112 homicides and 524 people have been shot. That clearly violence is surging and it has to be addressed. Uh, we have to deal with the federal issue of access to guns. Where are these guns coming from? There's not a gun shop in the city of Chicago. There's not a gun range in the city of Chicago. There's not one African-American arms dealer, if you will, um, in the world that makes ammunition. So these guns are coming into our neighborhoods. They're flooding in. We have to work with our federal agencies to support them, strengthen them. And I would like to see in the future more gun bust, the people that are selling these under the counter, the people that are straw buyers and purchases. I do think that we can strengthen that gun regulations while also protecting people's Second Amendment right. Um, the Second Amendment right, I don't think has to be distorted. I don't like seeing the civilians more armed than the police. So there seems to be a race to have too many guns and that's not the answer. I don't think police ought to feel like they're outgunned and outmanned. I don't think the other side of that is to put more guns out there. Um, uh, we just saw something the other week in Chicago on 35th Street, a security guard off duty shot at someone for something rather inconsequential. It certainly wasn't worth that of a life and the bullet went two blocks and struck someone else. There was an innocent bystander outside of a store. That's just wrong. So I'd like to bring the armament race uh, down in the country. The second part is when we talk about uh, the two sides of policing and community, I really look at it as one issue. It's public safety, it's community. These officers, and I've grown up with a lot of them, I've got classmates that have gone into serving Chicago police and into the um, state uh, troopers, as well as in the federal branch. Um, they're good, decent, honest, hardworking people, and no one wants to be in a job where you have your life on the line or you feel as if you can get killed by the end of the workday. So I do understand the police fear and the tensions. I do understand being over-policed and under-protected uh, where these violent crimes in Chicago are not solved. Uh, we have to have a clearance rate higher than 15, 16%. There are too many murderers still walking the streets. And I think when we shift the conversation to public safety, uh, that helps the police, but I think it's a broader conversation I would like to engage in in public safety. I think coaches for basketball, football, tennis, and all sports ought to be are engaged in public safety uh, when they are dealing with these children that have issues and challenges, and they're helping them to 
have social skills, to be able to de-escalate conflict. These are things that you learn in play. I think it was Plato that said, or Aristotle may get it wrong, that you learn more about a person's character in an hour of play than you can. And, and even over a year. So our children, I wanna see these fields um, of the tennis courts, the basketball courts, the track and fields. I wanna see them re-energized. I think that's a part of public safety that brings uh, down criminal activity. Children need outlets. Um, I would like to think that as President Biden discusses the Build Back Better, and one part of that was uh, human infrastructure. I think our conversation has been too narrowly focused on education, and we need to open that word up. And that, in fact, is human development. We have to have human development. We have to look at each child as an 18-year, 20-year cycle, and we have to give them as a nation all the resources and help they need. Uh, some child needs speech therapists, some child needs glasses, some child needs medicine, some child's going to need some food, some child's going to need a better family environment. We have to figure out all the things that child needs and put the government resources in there so we can have healthy human beings. Uh, I think one of the parts that's driving the crime and the violence that we have to put in perspective is our schools have had disinvestment for the last 50 years. Uh, it's the same building, but the teachers have been removed. The pay has been reduced. We need to open back those schools and fully fund them uh, in the public school system where the rich and the poor can have common ground, meeting ground. I think that will give the poor children the uh, superintendents of the rich, and the rich will have the understanding and the compassion of those that are less fortunate or asset constrained or limited income or unemployed or poor, they keep massaging, massaging these words. Um, but that is a solution. So I don't wanna fix the blame, I wanna fix the problem. Let's get back to the systemic root of how we got to the problems we have today. So once we do that, we can fix it and go forward. Uh, I can give you one other example. What happened Please. in Chicago? I was against, um, my children were not in public schools. They were in private schools. One of the key reasons is I had a speech impediment. I was a stutterer. And my parents took us out of district, uh, which is now a big rule against that. I went to a school district, public schools. My parents didn't have the funds so that I could get a speech therapist. That untied my tongue. When I taught at Kennedy King Community College and 20% uh, of my class grade was on class participation. And I remember the Friday afternoon, I was the first time freshman, I was the first time teacher and people didn't tell me you don't teach on Friday afternoon in the springtime when the sun is bright and it's 80 degrees in the springtime. And there was one student that didn't say much. So uh, when I walked past the class at four o'clock, there he was sitting in there, it was just the two of us. And so I said to him, now I finally got you. Okay, you're doing great in the class, but you haven't had class participation. And he started stuttering. I had to step outside and catch myself. I had to cry because I knew that child didn't have resources to untie his tongue. Uh, if he had a speech pathologist and he could have been trained to untie his tongue, that like re-energized a passion for me uh, for education and unlocking human potential. How can people grow? You're listening to WBBM News Radio's Ad Issue. I'm Craig Delamore. My guest is Jonathan Jackson, candidate for Congress in the 1st District. Uh, one other issue that is another 
issue that's a public safety issue, but doesn't automatically sound like that, and that's mental health. Um, can we talk a little bit about that, about what you your feelings are about what we should see when it comes to mental health, because so much of what happens, uh, you know, in some of these situations comes down to uh, mental health and mental health care. Right. And that goes along the continuum of things that have been uh, um, divested that started with the Reagan era. We used to have Tinley Park Hospital, mental hospital uh, facility on the south side. And then we saw that all these uh, mental health institutions started getting, um, you know, defunded. We've seen that also with our veterans that come back home that, that need resources that, uh, how can a veteran come back home and be served an eviction notice? Uh, that's just fundamentally wrong. We can't fight for democracy and human rights and values abroad and not bring that same fight back home. When I talk about our issue of, um, of mental health, that People are living in very constrained environments. There's a housing burden, there's a transportation burden, there's a uh, cost burden now on food. Look at the leading causes of death amongst Americans now. It's uh, turning into heart disease and cancer and other things that are also attributed to stress. Uh, so I think now is the time we have to think big, have to be imaginative. Uh, this is so much, um, this impacts the entire nation and how do we fix that on mental health? We gotta bring down stress. What are the things that are stressing Americans? They don't know how they're gonna make it to the end of the week and make enough money to support themselves. There's a great study called ALICE. The acronym A-L-I-C-E stands for Asset Limited uh, Income Constrained Employed. In short, that's fancy for the working poor, that 35% of Illinoisans are working poor that they're living paycheck to paycheck. What we saw the other day in the gas giveaway, people thought, oh, this is a stunt, this is publicity. Whatever you call it, uh, people were able to get to work. When the gas prices are at $5, uh, people are having to make the choice, can I go out um, and see my family or do I have to stay in and wait until Monday in order to get back to work? Other people have to stop going to work on the factory floors and therefore productivity goes down at the companies because they did not have enough workers. We have to pick up all four corners of the blanket. That's the language that President Lyndon Johnson has. We have to see how these issues are interconnected. When we talk about mental health, uh, everyone uh, needs some help. Um, I think for the police that are carrying the gun in a very violent society, they're gonna need some assistance. For the teachers that are now the caregivers for an entire community, um, we have their work defined as working in a classroom, but in fact, when the neighborhood is collapsing and failing, it's coming into the classroom. Now they're being told they have to get this child up to grade. Can you imagine the mental health and stress? You, um, there are two thoughts on that. One is you prepare your child to go to school, but the government also has to have the mindset, we have to prepare our school for the child. What does this child need when he gets to this building? If the things in his neighborhood have failed, what are the additional resources we need to get to save this child, to pick them up, to make them uh, fully developed human beings again? And we're seeing stress now coming into the teenage population. Um, one of the sobering statistics is teenage suicide, how children are feeling a sense of despair and, and hopelessness. So I think if we focused on broadening the term 
of mental health um, that would reduce violence because some of the children and even some of the adults do not know how to de-escalate our uh, tensions and traumas that we've all experienced. I mean, the South Side right now is trauma filled. Uh, we all need to feel like we can breathe and relax and, not, and we're not prisoners in our homes. Uh, let's talk a few couple of minutes about uh, economic development. Another major issue is on the South Side and the South Suburbs, still a struggle to attract businesses, transportation still challenge. What can Congress and you do to change that? Well, I think we're now in a once in a generation opportunity with the historic Build Back Better plan and the infrastructure bill. Uh, there's been history, there's been a history of past discrimination in the allocation of these resources. Um, we need a congressperson that will sit there and monitor to make sure that the needle moves, that there's advancement, there's contract compliance, that we simply follow the letter of the law. Uh, in this infrastructure bill, we need to make sure that we have access to our transit uh, system. People say you are what you eat, but I tell you more importantly, you are where you live. When you are locked off from means of transportation, uh, you cannot get to the public hospital in time, you cannot get to school in time, you cannot get to work, cannot get to groceries. So if you had more efficient mass transit, that could solve a lot of problems. Um, Look at the Chicago grid where you have the major hospitalization on the west side. Well, the people on the southeast side cannot get to it. Uh, we're looking at a health desert. We saw this with COVID and now that COVID is beginning to go away, you're gonna see an incredible uh, amount of devastation that we have to fix. There are several hospitals in the first congressional district that do not have maternity wards. They were uh, eliminated under the guise of budget cuts. Uh, so women are thinking with at-risk pregnancies, they can go to the local hospital, but there's no maternity ward in there. Um, the children, they're going back to school. Some children were able to have pods at home, and have access to internet and was able to get private tutors and they're gonna do fine. They're going to accelerate. And there's another generation of children that needed to be in school. Uh, all children need to be in school, but the others that could not supplement that were kindergartens two years ago. Now they're going to school in second and third grade and they're gonna miss a benchmark year. The child that was in fourth grade that was struggling is going back to school in seventh grade. The child that was a junior in high school has now aged out of the system for education, didn't fill out his trade paperwork, wasn't able to speak with a counselor to get to college. And now he's 19 or 20. So we have to look at human infrastructure, human development, we're going to have to go back and create a plan with labor, um, with the private corporations, with government to give these families support. Again, government should help families when they can no longer help themselves. Uh, this was a, uh, a problem with COVID that's, a pick, that's affected different constituents differently. I think I offer a perspective having worked with these family members, worked with these children, worked with these teachers, and worked with laborers to understand. Congress has been pulled in two directions uh, for, for quite some time now, uh, or I should say the Democrats in Congress have been pulled in two directions because uh, on one side, moderates are trying to win votes with uh, narrow margins down there. Uh, some are worrying that they won't even have control of the uh, of Congress after the midterms. And then the progressives want to pull harder to the left, 
Joe Biden's uh, fate as president is in the balance. Where will you fit in that constellation of views? Uh, progressive and pulling to the left that uh, we've conceded too much for too long, that um, we've got to now build the wall. We've got to toe the line. We've got to take our rights and resources back. Look at what's happened with the um, student loan debt. It's gone from 400 billion roughly in 2006 to 1.5 trillion. So now we have students that are making uh, lifelong decisions uh, as opposed to investing in themselves, they're saying, I cannot afford to take out the loan and invest in myself. Uh, that's a, a choice a child, a student should not have to make a young adult, that they should know that we have a land of opportunity. Education is part of our national defense. Education is a part of our national security. Education is a part of our frontline workers. Everyone should be able to feel that they can go to, go to school, advance their education. So the, um, of course, we have to work both sides. I get that. And I tell you, there are going to be some, no one knows the, the future. Let me put it that way. Um, when I say that, the automobile industry is transforming. In some ways, you can look at it as a, as a computer with four wheels. When you talk about the, uh, about the chip, these uh, institutions are beginning to merge. And so having a fresh set of eyes, a fresh perspective, on what the future looks like so we can fight for it. One other thing is that uh, progressive uh, does, does not mean defending, I mean defunding the police. That is not my definition of progressive at all. If someone breaks in your house, you're gonna call the police and the police have a right to get back home with safety and security. So I think uh, progressive in my definition has to do with the platform issues that puts people first. Okay. So noted. Um, but uh, we, we have to uh, talk about, uh, at least briefly, uh, Chicago has seen a Congressman Jackson before. That's your older brother who, uh, frankly, has seemed to have the brightest future ahead of him. And then it all collapsed in a conviction of embezzling campaign funds for personal use. I know that must have been really hard to go through. And, and I'm... What's your, what should people know about your run after that? Um, I love my, uh, my brother and he's not running. I'm focused on the first congressional district because the people are in pain. Uh, we have one of the largest life uh, expectancy uh, gaps in the entire nation between Inglewood and Streeterville, almost 30 years. We've got insurance companies that are overcharging neighborhoods in the African-American community that need consumer protection. Uh, we've got unsolved crime in our policing. We need to have good community police engagement where people feel as if they can talk to the police and the police feel respected and protected. We also have to talk about our investment in education so that Illinois is no longer shrinking. Illinois is shrinking. The African-American community has lost 261,000 people in the first two decades of this new millennium. You have to ask yourself why. And I believe that people move for two reasons. They need safety and they need opportunity. So we have to deal with public safety on the front side and we have to deal with the opportunity. And what does that opportunity look like? I would start by investing in the community college system. Uh, those young persons that need trades, let's open the doors. 
Um, we've seen this experiment in globalization. It's gonna start having its backlash effect. We could have built computer chips right here in, in the United States. Uh, let's talk about the future of the electrical vehicle market and how Illinois can participate and regain our manufacturing strength and grow corporate Fortune 500, um, Fortune 500 institutions at home. Let's talk about the rebuilding of America, the investments, the money that we put in Ukraine and in Russia and other places saying we have to teach them capitalism after the Berlin Wall uh, came down. Let's put that same energy into rebuilding our core cities and our communities that have not had investments in the last 50 years. I think uh, Ford, for example, is a great example in leading the way. I would say congratulations to Bill Ford and the UAW. Uh, what they've done there is remarkable. I look for the examples. What Ford did is they kind of left uh, Tennessee in 1952. And now 70 years later, in the midst of this pandemic and other things, they're building back a bigger plant than ever, $11 billion investment, and they'll have batteries. And they're taking the union to Tennessee with them. Um, I wanna leverage that sort of infrastructure and let's grow America again. And that is gonna be the final word. That is Jonathan Jackson, candidate for Congress in the first district. Thank you for spending the time with me. Uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. There's a link on the homepage. You can also find our podcasts on odyssey.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of that issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 1059 WBBM. T Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus ATT and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T Mobile store today. 